0: As some of you will remember, we've come in our study of Revelation to the place where the Lord has returned. We saw the return of the king, and we saw that upon the return of Jesus, of course, there was the judgment against the forces that would gather against him, the, the beast and the false prophet who Uh, led everyone astray. They've been judged. They've been cast into the lake of fire. Uh, The devil, who's the inspiration behind the whole thing, he's been bound and and cast uh, into a prison for a thousand years. And now we come to the setting up of the kingdom, and that's what we want to talk about today. The history of the world has been, among other things, a demonstration of man's inability to govern himself and of one failed attempt after another to usher in an ideal society. If you study history, that's really what it is. And you know, coming from uh, a place where we just you know, walked through uh, so much history It's amazing to to look back over all of the centuries and to think of these great kingdoms, these great empires that that once existed uh, that have been reduced to just uh, a pile of stones today. And and to see the, the cycle just being repeated over and over and over again of man attempting to set up the ideal society, but it just is never realized. It can't be realized because of the sinful condition of man. But it will happen when Jesus comes again. And so when he comes, he will set up that long-awaited kingdom. And that's what Revelation 20 tells us about. It's about the the setting up of the kingdom, the reigning uh, with Christ over the world. Now, it's interesting though here in Revelation 20, although it is the kingdom, the long-awaited kingdom that is being established here, Revelation 20 doesn't give us any specific detail about it. It just sort of, you know, kind of skims over it. it, just says that they shall live and reign with him. They reign with him a thousand years, but it doesn't tell us any of the specifics. And the reason for that, I think, is because the prophets have already given us all of those details. So, in order to understand what the kingdom is going to look like, at least in its first phase, we have to go back to the Old Testament prophets and even to the words of Jesus Himself, because it's there that we get the the detailed picture. So. We're going to be doing that today. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today. Today is really going to be kind of a Bible study in the truest sense where we're just going to go through and look at uh, numerous passages. But what we want to break it down into is, uh, first of all, what is going to happen immediately after the Lord returns and deals with the instigators of the, the conflict that takes place there, the battle for Jerusalem, And then we want to look at how the kingdom uh, begins to be established and what that is going to entail. And then finally, we want to look at the application for us today, because it's important to remember that although the kingdom is coming in the future, it has already come in one sense, and we don't want to overlook that. So we'll look at that as our final point today. But What is the first thing that happens once Jesus comes and deals with the opposing forces that are coming against Jerusalem and ultimately coming against him? Well, the first thing that's going to happen is there will be a judgment of the nations. And Jesus himself told us about this in Matthew 25. So what I would encourage you to do rather than turn to the passages, you can if you'd like, uh, but maybe just jot down the scripture references and you can read them over later. But Matthew 25, verses 31 through 34, then verses 45 and 46, Jesus tells us about this judgment of the nations. Now remember, there uh, there are going to be people that live through, they survive this tribulation period. And as we pointed out, the final conflict, although it will be definitely what you would categorize as a world war, there will be many parts of the globe that uh, people will you know be in a sense out of harm's way and and will survive. They'll live through that horrific time. And for those nations that survive, Jesus tells us that there is a judgment for them that will come. And so we read in Matthew 25, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So you see the picture, all of the nations are gathered before the Lord. And now he is going to Separate them. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So this is where things begin. The kingdom is going to begin to be established. And now it it all starts with a separation of the, the sheep, the believers from the goats, the unbelievers that survive the tribulation. And now from that point, we get into the specific details of What this reign is going to entail. Now, what we're talking about here, you might have heard the term before the millennium. Well, millennium means 1,000. And we're talking here about the thousand year reign of Christ. Now, we need to be clear that the reign of Christ is eternal when Jesus comes back, he will establish his kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. It's not a temporary kingdom of a thousand years, but there is an aspect of it that is specifically a thousand years. And there will be a a brief disruption, uh, not even so much an interruption because it's not like Christ is going to lose his power briefly. He doesn't. But there will be a disruption at the end of the thousand years where Satan, who is in prison, will be released once again. He will deceive a multitude from the nations. They will come up against the holy city. They will attempt an overthrow, and they will be uh, destroyed. And then you have heaven and earth passing away and you have a whole new heaven and a whole new earth being established. But Jesus reigns from the moment that he comes back all the way through on into eternity. But what we're looking at here when we look at the millennium is we're looking at his reign in the actual city of Jerusalem, sitting on the ancient throne of David and ruling over the Jewish people, the house of Jacob. That's what the millennium is going to look like, at least from, from the, uh, the center of it. It's going to include the whole world. But uh, the base for the kingdom will be in the city of Jerusalem. And so millennium, as I said, means a 1,000. And in this 20th chapter, we're told six times that... Jesus will reign, and we will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, there are those today in the church who deny that there is a thousand-year reign of Christ. They say that's just an indefinite number. It doesn't, it's not literal, it shouldn't be taken literally. And they are known theologically as a millennial, a millennial, however you want to pronounce the A. Um, which means they don't believe in a millennium. They just believe that Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be an eternal reign from that point on. So it's it's true that there will be an eternal reign, but there's this 1,000-year period that, for whatever reason, they don't really take seriously. But I think it's important that we take it seriously because, after all, it says it six times <laughs> that there is a 1,000-year reign. But those who take the amillennial position generally do not see that Israel has a future in the sense that we believe that they do. And that's why they can dismiss the thousand years as being symbolic rather than literal. But if you go back and take the Old Testament promises to Israel seriously, and the promise of a king sitting upon the throne of David This is where it takes place in the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. So I want to just walk you through uh, the details of the millennium. First thing to note is that this is the place where we rule and reign with Christ. The church has been given promises over and over again, and here in the book of Revelation as well, that we will be reigning with Christ during that time. Paul, in writing to Timothy, said this. He said, it is a faithful saying that if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Many promises given to the church, that we would reign with the Lord, that we would be involved in the judgment or the the administration of the affairs of the world. Uh, The the sixth verse that we read here today, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such a second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So so for the millennium, the church, which of course is distinct from Israel, and the, the situation on the one hand is Israel that Jesus will reign over our people, just like we are today. We will be glorified at that time. So we will no longer be the people that we are now. We will be perfected. We will be glorified. We will be sinless. We will be like the angels. We will, we will be in, the, in a permanent, perfected state. That is how the church will reign with Christ. And it's important to, to remember that that it's the perfected saints who will administrate the kingdom. It's important to remember that because uh, only in the perfected state are we fit to administrate the kingdom. You know, every time in history the church has sought to uh, exercise political power or, you know, gain authority over people's lives or whatever, it's turned out to be an absolute disaster. And understandably, because we're all still sinners. And we still have those propensities toward oppression and selfishness and all of that. But that will not be the case in the kingdom age because we will be forever freed from the sinful condition and now glorified, perfected. And that is how the church will administrate the kingdom during that age. So that's where the church is for the thousand years. We are in that place of of ruling and reigning with Christ. Now we shift the focus to Israel. And it's here during this thousand years that the kingdom will be restored to Israel. Jesus, when he was about to ascend into heaven, Acts chapter one. Maybe you remember the disciples asked him this question. They said, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?" So they understood that there was to be a restoration of the kingdom. They understood that the promises to David were uh, promises that were to go on forever. They understood that the prophets had declared that there would be this this righteous reign. So they're asking the question. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put it in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit was, has come upon you. So the answer to the question was no. I'm not going to restore the kingdom at this time. He wasn't saying he wasn't gonna restore it. it just He wasn't gonna restore it at that time. And so the time for the restoration of the kingdom will be when the Lord returns, when Jesus comes the second time. And then Israel will inherit the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So all of those promises that God made will finally be realized. They never had been realized before. The furthest extent of Israel's authority Fell short of the boundaries that God had originally set for them. Under David and Solomon, that's when the kingdom expanded its furthest. You know, on this trip that I just returned from, we didn't only tour Israel, but we we crossed the border and we went over into Jordan. And I was I was really amazed at how much biblical history there is in Jordan as well. First of all, uh, two and a half of the original. 12 tribes of Israel settled in what is known as Jordan today. And not only that, but uh, later David's kingdom would have expanded and covered that whole area of Ammon, of Moab, and Edom, which are all today uh, parts of what we know as Jordan. And so it will be during this millennium that Israel will inherit all of the promises that God had originally made to them. Let me quote to you from Ezekiel, first of all, and then secondly from Zechariah. And like I said, you might you might turn in your Bibles or you might just jot these down and look at them later. Ezekiel 36 verses 24 through 28 reads like this, for I will take from among the nations, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put new, a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. Then you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Now, we know that the Jewish people, of course, many of them anyway, are in the land of Israel today. And they are there undoubtedly by the providence of God. God has providentially placed them there, but they are unclean. They have not yet been cleansed. You know, much of the nation is uh, atheistic. And those who are not atheistic are just engaged in legalistic, ritualistic religion. But the idea of any kind of a, a literal, you know, personal, loving relationship with God doesn't exist except among those who are believers in the Messiah, which are a very small number. There's approximately 8 million people in Israel today, and the estimated numbers of believers in Jesus as the Messiah is about 20,000. 20,000, some, some double that and say, oh, maybe, maybe you could push it to 40,000. But think about that. In a country full of millions of people, that's a very small number, So we have to understand that Israel as it is today, although they're there providentially by the plan and purpose of God, they're not there in the fullest sense that they will be when the Lord comes back. They're there in unbelief and they're there in sin and they're there in uncleanness. But that will change. Zechariah chapter eight, verses three through eight says, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion... And dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, which I can tell you is not the case today. The mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people. I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. So this is what it's going to look like when the Lord comes back. You know, as I said, it shall be called the city of truth. It is anything but that today. Wherever you go in the city today, you find uh, it's just it, uh, infected with, with deceit and with lies and with false religion. Um, as a matter of fact, the UN has uh, recently referred to the what is called the Temple Mount, the place where uh, the, the Jewish temple originally stood. They They have... The the UN no longer refers to that as the Temple Mount, but they refer to it as the Al-Aqsa Mount. And what they're saying is that they do not acknowledge any Jewish presence in that place in ancient times. They're dating it back to the mosque in the, the late 600s, and they're now referring to it as you know, one of the, the UN is referring to it as one of the the ancient holy sites of Islam without any acknowledgement of Israel's uh, previous existence there at that place. So this is the kind of lying and deceit, not to mention the false religion that's there. But also I look at the passage here in Zechariah where he speaks of the beautiful situation of the streets being full of boys and girls and so forth. And of course, today, we know that in many of the places in the land, that is, um, it's not really possible because it's not safe. And even as we walk the streets of Jerusalem, you know, you can't help but have the thought cross your mind that, you know, somebody could come out with a suicide vest on and just blow themselves up here because that happens. It happens all too often, but it won't happen in the future because Christ will set up his kingdom. And so Israel inherits the land that was promised to them. The throne of David is established. You see, God gave a promise to David that one of his descendants would sit upon the throne and would rule over the house of Jacob. And as a matter of fact, that promise was communicated to Mary by Gabriel in Luke chapter two, that he would, uh, or Luke chapter one, that he would sit upon the throne of David and rule over the house of Jacob forever. And that's exactly what's going to happen. As Isaiah predicted, for unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given. You're familiar with that passage, perhaps Isaiah 9, 6. But then it goes on to say in verse seven, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Sitting upon the throne of David, Jeremiah said this, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses five and six, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So the promises... (coughs) Israel inherits the promises, the throne of David is established, and then Jerusalem becomes the capital of the world. So fascinating to think of that. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world in the future. Listen to what it says in the prophet Micah, chapter four, verses one and two. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the kingdom of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You wonder why that is the most contested piece of real estate on the planet it's because it's going to be the world's capital with Christ sitting upon the throne of david you know when you look at the current situation to me it's just it's all just confirmation that everything that the bible says is true it doesn't make any sense from any other perspective i mean when you go to jerusalem today it's great because of the you know the historical aspects of it and all that but look there are a lot of way better cities to pick if you want to pick a city to fight over, I could think of a dozen better ones. But the contention for this little piece of real estate is astounding, and to me, it only supports what the Bible says. It's it, there there doesn't there's no other sensible explanation than it is God's chosen place to establish his kingdom and the devil has opposed it and does oppose it and will oppose it until he is incarcerated as he is uh, in relation to the passages that we're reading here. And so Jerusalem becomes the capital of the world. And then Jerusalem's temple becomes the center of worship for all the nations. When God had uh, the, the temple was established, built by Solomon, planned by David... Remember, God said about it that it was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And it will become that. It will be the center of worship for all the nations. Listen to Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Zechariah 14, 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So we see that Jerusalem's temple will become the center for worship for all nations. Now, there is no temple in Jerusalem today, but there is what is called the Temple Institute. And it's very interesting. There's a group of people in the land today who so strongly believe that the temple needs to be rebuilt, that they have made preparation for when it is built for the whole Worship ritual to be reinstated. They have gone back and done all of the research on what the furnishings of the temple look like, and they have made replicas of those. They have uh, made replicas of the priestly garment, the high priest clothing, and so forth. And in this place called the, the Temple Institute, you can go and they will show you all of the things that they've made in preparation. Then they will also show you the the uh, model of the temple that they plan to see built. We didn't go to the Temple Institute this year. Uh, we were there last year, though. And as we were sitting, listening to the person give their, um, you know, give us, give us the details on what they're all about and what they're planning to do, and as they were talking about the temple, I noticed that they were they were using as their basis for the, <clears throat> Construction of the new temple, they were using Herod's temple as the model and they were using the rabbinical writings for all of the information on the details. And so I asked them the question I said, Now, why are you doing that since you have all of the information for Solomon's temple already laid out in the scriptures? And they said, Well, we prefer Herod's temple and we think the rabbinical writers are more detailed, so we're using them. And I said, Okay, well, what about the Messiah? Because based on this passage that we just read in Zechariah, I said, uh, the scripture says Messiah is going to rebuild the temple. And this is literally what the person said to me. They said, you know, we don't know what the Messiah is doing. We don't know if he's coming, if he's not coming, but we're not going to sit around and wait for him. That's what they said. They said, we got to get this temple built. This temple is going to unite us. This temple is going to, you know, give us a legitimacy in the land. And, you know, if the Messiah comes along, sure, he can help. I mean, you know, we could use all the help we can get. But we're not, we're not that concerned about that. You know, needless to say, I was pretty astounded at the, the candid response there. But that's the mentality today. The Jews see the temple as a national rallying point. And as a place where the nations can come and worship. It's interesting that more people than the Jews have that same idea about some kind of a future structure there in the land. The UN thinks in that same way. But you see, they're right in one sense because they talk about the third temple and this will be the third temple. But what we just read about here is not the third temple, it's the fourth temple. Because the third temple that has not yet been built, that will be built either by the, um, I don't think it'll be be built directly by the Antichrist, but it will be uh, built by his permission or perhaps by funding, that temple will be destroyed during the tribulation. That's the temple that they will resume the sacrifices in And that's the temple that ultimately the false prophet will will have the image of the beast placed there in that temple. That temple will be destroyed. But Jesus, according to Zechariah, the man whose name is the branch, that's a reference to the Lord, he shall build the temple and he shall bear the glory. So when the Lord comes back, he is going to build the temple. He's going to build the legitimate temple temple. So Jerusalem's temple would be the center of worship for all nations. And then fifthly, Israel will be chief among the nations. God had promised to the people of Israel, if they obeyed him, they would be the head of the nations. If they rebelled against him, they would be the tail. They have been the tail but God's promise to them is that they will once again be the head of the nations. But when we talk about that, we need to understand and be clear that we're not talking about Israel in its current situation. We're not talking about uh, the Israeli government as we know it today. I mean, obviously they're corrupt human beings, just like every other government of every other nation. And there's all kinds of problems with that government and so forth. And Today, when we talk about things like Israel becoming the chief uh, among the nations, we need to make sure that we're being clear that this is in the time when Jesus, the Messiah, is ruling over them, and they have all been brought under his authority and are acting in accordance with his Ways and his will and purpose. But Israel will be the chief among the nations. According to Isaiah 49 22 and 23, thus says the Lord Behold, I will lift up my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. And then Zechariah eight twenty three. thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nations will grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So these are the promises that are yet to be realized. And this is what Jesus will do when he comes back. He will set up the Davidic kingdom, but it will also affect the entire planet, the environment, the social conditions. We know from uh, Isaiah chapter 11 that righteousness and equity and all of those things that we long for in society, those will be the norm for the kingdom. But there will be environmental, social transformation. Isaiah eleven six six through 10, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child (coughs) shall play by the viper's den and the weaned child shall put his hand in the cobra's hole. They shall not destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious." Isaiah 35, 5 through 7, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And then finally from Isaiah 65, it says this, no more shall an infant From there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed." they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food." They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the kingdom that's coming. This is the kingdom age. This is the millennium, and it is the perfect world. It's the world that man has dreamed of but never been able to attain. Jesus will establish this reign over the earth when he returns, And yet, astoundingly, there will be a disruption. After 1,000 years, the devil will be released from the prison, and he will gather an innumerable army. You know, it is often said today that the problems with people have to do with their environment, has to do with their lack of education, and all of these different things. But you're going to have people that lived in a perfect environment, A perfect world, but still the rebellion will be there. We're going to talk in detail about that on Wednesday night. So there's a last revolt. Then after that, there's a final judgment. And then after that comes the eternal state. And that's what Revelation 21 and 22 are about. They give us a a glimpse into the eternal state. And so we'll look in detail at those things. But as we close today, here's what we need to keep in mind. The kingdom that's coming, that we're talking about here, has already come in one sense. And we cannot lose sight of that. The kingdom has come to every individual person who bows the knee and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. When Jesus came the first time, now Jesus, of course, knew everything. He knew that he was going to be rejected. He knew that the kingdom in its fullest sense, like we've been talking about, would not be established at the time. He knew all of that, but he went about announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because even though it would not be manifested in its fullest sense at his first coming, there was another sense in which it would be manifested in the individual life And thank God that as we look at the world and as we look at the madness of the world that we live in, thank God we not only have hope that someday in the future, it's all going to be sorted out because Jesus is going to come back, but we right now can experience the kingdom on a personal level. And we cannot forget that. And the manifestation of the kingdom today is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus said, when the religious leaders of the day said, you know, show us the kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom will not come with observation. And he was talking about at that present time. He said, for the kingdom of God is in your midst. He was there among them. And wherever he is king, that's where the kingdom of God is. So today, we who have put our faith and trust in Christ, we've already entered the kingdom. And that should be the thing that gives us the encouragement, that gives us the hope, that gives us the peace, that gives us even the joy in the midst of the collapse of the kingdoms of this world that we are observing presently. The world is a mess. And, You know, there, in previous times, there was, you know, there was always some sort of place of refuge. There was a place of escape. You could get away, possibly, from the oppression, and you can go to a land of freedom or something like that. You know, those places are becoming few and far between today. And in what has been historically called the land of the free and the home of the brave, we're not as free as we think, are we? And we see that oppression increasing and all of those kinds of things that we have been to some degree freed from, but those things can be very troubling. But if we keep remembering that we're already part of a kingdom, a kingdom that can't be overthrown, a kingdom that can't be stopped, a kingdom that's marked by righteousness and peace and joy. That's how God wants us living today. You know, when I was in the Middle East this past couple of weeks, I was thinking about the people of Israel. I was thinking about the people of Jordan. Of course, in Israel, you've got the dominance of the Jewish religious system, which is just essentially rules, legalism. And you go over into Jordan and you have Islam there and it's it's just another manifestation of the same thing. And you think of all of these people living in under this spiritual oppression and it translates itself into a lot of oppression on just the, the regular daily level. But then thinking also that, you know, all throughout these places, there are little pockets of the kingdom of God. There are places where people have found the truth of the gospel, and they've given their lives to Christ, and they've experienced the righteousness, peace, and joy. And they're there, these little flickering lights, and they're holding forth hope. You know, I heard the story of this one Palestinian young man who went off from Israel to Jordan to study in a university, and of all places, he gets saved at the university in Jordan. And he's met up with some of our believing friends over there, and they were telling me about him. I didn't even get the chance to meet him. But as they were describing him, he's just this amazingly on fire, excited young man who just can't believe that he's met Jesus. And to me, that's the hope. That's what the gospel does. And so we, the ones who are presently part of the kingdom, we can't lose sight of that. We already know that there's no man is ever going to set up a righteous kingdom on the earth. Jesus will do it. And we need to remember that he will do it, but he's already done it partially. He's done it for us personally. The kingdom will come and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But until that happens, let's live in the righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Spirit that God has given us today in this phase of the kingdom. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word that you will establish your kingdom. Lord, as you declared that as the waters cover the sea, so the earth would be filled with your glory. And we believe that that's true. And Lord, we thank you that today we are citizens of the kingdom. Lord, even more importantly than that, we're children of the king. And so Lord, as we think about these things, as we meditate on them, as we saturate our lives with these truths, Lord, help us to draw our strength, our peace, our joy from these promises and help us to live within the kingdom in its present manifestation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.